Amazing. Thank you, Vasuki. Um, thank you so much for joining us today on a Friday evening to talk about my research. Um, so I'll start by introducing the cover. So this is a cover of a graphic novel that I made for my thesis project. Um, it's titled Yestermorrow, and I'll be delving further into what that means. Um, just going to start out with an introduction. Uh, so my name is Anna, and I'm a Toronto-based interdisciplinary artist, researcher, and storyteller. A lot of my practice explores uh, my hyphenated Korean Canadian identity through animation, world building, roller skating, murals, and zines. Um, my background started off with architecture um, and then formed more into like digital media. And then most recently I graduated from communication and culture program, which is a joint program between Ryerson and York. Um, I find this to be a very interesting trajectory just because it's a little unconventional in terms of like the typical creative path. But I think it makes sense as to why I pursued a comms degree instead of something like fine arts. Um, but this point will be something I'll be referencing at the end of the presentation. I want to begin with my timeline. So this is the second page of the graphic novel. Um, it begins with highlighting different characters of each of the story of Yestermorrow. Um, each chapter is dedicated to a certain character and there's certain events that lead up to the conclusion. So Yestermorrow is a feminist graphic novel that uses patriarchal tech dystopian society to highlight and critique the exploitation of women in tech, craft, and maker spaces. Informed by techno-feminism and speculative designers, I critique the gender, racial, and power structures of how tech giants have repeatedly treated their racialized female tech workers like their products, used, disposed of, then left to rot. The story is primarily told through the father, YY, and his daughter, Y. The story begins with YY's mother, who you see on the left, who is a deep sea diver from the island Blue Carbon. It's a matriarchal island with the largest coastal ecosystem. And as one of the remaining countries with enough natural resources to sustain itself, Blue carbon is seen as a valuable commodity to extract resources from. YY's mother refuses to use more technology as a temporary solution, which widens, which furthers the gap between her and her and her son, YY. Feeling rejected, YY joins the military as a technician, which feeds his appetite for tinkering with computers and technology. And once Blue Carbon loses the war, YY flees, leaving his mother behind for Yestermorrow a very diverse metropolitan city. He enrolls in a polytechnic university and meets XX, who eventually becomes his business partner to start an independent tech company called High Tech. Eventually, they have to split parts, um, split ways, because they had differing opinions on to where they would take the company next. And this is where YY gives birth to Y. On the far right, Y is a 20 years, 21 years young computer science graduate and DIY fixer who is recruited by Citron, uh, the world's power, most powerful tech conglomerate, to pilot their first ever repair program. Her story is inspired by true events of former Google employees where Citron steals her research and is then wrongfully fired. 
Once she realizes that she was hired under false pretenses, she leaks all of Citron's source code online, which causes a shift in the electronics industry and Citron's headquarters to collapse. Fearful, she escapes Yestermaro to create Pile Island, a temporary repair utopia where she gets by repairing sentimental electronics that were discarded before the Great Purge. So the problems introduced within Yestermaro, it comes across three generations and it highlights the issues of supporting and working within big tech amongst different timelines and um, all the generational knowledge that might have been lost through technology. As a secondary piece of the program, um, you have to submit a, like a 30 page research paper alongside your project. And so I use that document as a way of um, collecting all of my creative process, but also flushing out a lot of the historical context of what repair and uh, technology and race and gender might align as. Um, so connecting the, com the graphic novel to my paper, I examined five main categories to help world build yestermorrow. And at the top here, um, computer as woman's work, this references my first year work where I was like really interested in looking at race and technology, uh, but more particularly in voice assistants. So like anthropomorphized voice assistants, short-term AVAs, um, so like Siri, Alexa, and Cortana. Um, and I think I was drawn to these personas because it kind of uh, captured a lot of how tech culture perceived the future. It was very much like female oriented without using or without um, giving agency to like the female or non-binary character. And so looking at all these tropes, it was very similar to my relationship to video games and role playing. And so I wanted to somehow bridge the gap between like a storytelling project as well as examining these various power structures within tech. And so that kind of led me to looking at the early history of computation, which was led by women, but is still predominantly male. Um, and I came across this metaphor called computer as woman's work, which I will go more into in the next slide. But it was just these continual efforts to de-skill women where their early successes were determined by them. Um, but it just reorganized the hierarchy of labor that is still continued today. And that's like a big overarching theme within my, my graphic novel. Um, fast forward, I wanted to look at different types of movements that try to shift that focus away from male-dominated spaces. So I looked way back in the 1870s at the arts and craft movement, and again, this is referencing my visual arts background and taking uh, first-year art history. And basically, it was looking at the tensions between machine-made goods and handmade goods and trying to see if there is a difference between seeing um, the craftsmanship being different, but also what value would be put into those systems and modes of production. Um, but even then, like illustrators, art teachers, painters, women were getting more opportunities to pursue these fields, but they were highly becoming feminized because of how intricately detailed the skill was required to make something like that. 
So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and then I kind of wanted to contrast that with a, a more current example, such as the DIY hacker and makerspace movement, which really boomed uh, around 2006 and still exists today. Um, basically what a makerspace is, is a community operated, often non-for-profit workspace where people with common interests can use power tools, um, machining technology and help solve problems together in like a collaborative space. And, um, and it really did boom with like the field of STEM as well. But despite the makers movement vision for equity, those leading the movement were also often white middle-class male adults who were able to afford enough like leisure time, resources and skill to pursue those. Um, but in my paper, I do examine and focus on um, a lot of feminist hacker spaces that came out of this movement as well, and they still exist today, which is something along the lines of what Pile Island was created within my graphic novel. But yeah, I just wanted to see how like hacking and the definition of my definition of repair went hand in hand and trying to imagine what like a circular economic repair logic might look like in the year 2000, uh, 2100. All right. So examining more further into the metaphor computer as woman's work, um, this wasn't the first time a device has been gendered as the feminization of computers dates back to the early history of computation during the mid 19th century when businesses started hiring women as clerks, bookkeepers, and office, office machine operators. Computer offices began employing some of the more educated women as computers. And with the impression of women having better clerical skills than men, plus the automation of the repetitive work of early information processing, it gave rise to this metaphor such as women, computer is woman. And in 1946, which is the image as the background, the ENIAC, the first programmable digital computer was invented. But since these tasks required such meticulous skill, it was given place to women because of their small, fragile hands. <laughs> um, so it quickly became a feminized occupation, even though it required such a robust knowledge of skill and um, mathematical skills as well. And then this is what started to happen with um, women's work becoming more invisible and not as recognizable. Um, it also expanded into more of how um, like the voice assistant became more of like a secretary or like an assistant and, or like a caretaker. Um, further along my first year work, uh, I was looking at the personality traits of these voice assistants, which goes into the design of how these voice assistants are made. And so this is a slide from a UX designer, Sophie Klebel, who works at Google, um, mapping out certain traits that are desirable within these voice assistants and what attitudes that can be portrayed. I just thought it was interesting that you could describe a machine such as this um, and looking at like the scales of sociability, agree agreeableness and utilitarian design. Um, which also extends to the same way as how big tech can treat their racialized workers. Okay, um, so this is a slide uh, from my graphic novel, but how does all of this relate to repair and my project? 
So within technology, repair is seen as a disruption, a fault in the system or an unplanned intervention. Maintenance is closely linked to repair, but it also requires routine checkups rather than repairing something right after it's broken. At first, maintenance might not yield immediate results, but prolonging the life of an object is the main objective. So the distinction between repair and maintenance is that one is preventative, while the other rep represents the actions used to um, reverse the damage inflicted on the product to return to its original state. So going back to the definition of repair, it seems that my definition was formed by my parents, like my uh, Korean parents who had opposing views on what repair might mean. And I think there's a lot of like poetics that come into fixing something that is already broken rather than disposing it and turning turning away to something new and shiny. Um, but yeah, and I think repair is already very like, it's, it's definitely a disruption of the cycle that manufacturers have designed for us. And so I just wanted to investigate further onto what part of that, that system uh, that I'm examining. Okay, so Citron, um, which I mentioned in the summary before, is the villain of the story. And Citron is a play on what Apple is in our current world, but in Yestermorrow's version, it's a, a tech conglomerate that is based of, off of a fruit, um, which I think is a very interesting like naming convention. But yeah, playing off of Apple's name, Citron means uh, a large fragrant citrus fruit with a thick rind. And the theme of fruit is used very much so in my graphic novel because I feel like it de perfectly describes the strength or I guess like the chokehold that tech has on like governance and determining influence um, and social participation and status. But beneath Citron's rind, um, there is a disease that's spreading and molding, causing their entire facilities to rot from the inside out which is the pen you see on the right. And uh, once the fruit decays, there's no way to reverse its effects. So it further exhibits the consequences of exclusionary, racist, and sexist practices within tech spaces. And in order to safely grow edible fruit, it needs to be tended to with care, like water, food, and shelter. So using rotten fruit and decomposition as a way to represent the decay that tech giants sweep under the rug, it's clearly reflected through wise attitudes and where she discovers the rotting smell within Citron's e-waste facilities, but seems to be the only person who notices or even cares. Um. So the way, this is um, the first day that she starts working there, not knowing any, um, any of Citron's intentions, but Y's story is reflected by two true instances. Uh, one being in 2007, when the iPhone first came out, uh, George Hotz, a 17-year-old pro prolific hacker, he was the first one to successfully jailbreak the iPhone. And this was big news because, A, this is like the world's, first like biggest smartphone um, all the capabilities and like the palm of your hand was pretty incredible but there was also limitations as to how people could use it 
um, hence like replacing the battery, charging it, customizing it to your own ability. And for the 17 year old to be able to hack all the security flaws of Apple's iPhone, it revealed a lot of the company's vulnerabilities that caused a shift in copyright infringement, um, which was not very sophisticated at the time. The second um, occasion was more recent with Dr. Timnit Gebru, who was a well-respected black computer scientist uh, hired to co-lead the Google ethical AI team. Upon writing an unpublished paper that covered the risks of very large language models, she was asked to withdraw the paper and remove the names associated to it. Um, and Gebru requested the reasons for withdrawing the paper, but she was suddenly terminated by Google immediately. So Gebru's unjustified termination reveals how contradictory tech corps are in terms of um, the job description that they make at an ethical AI team and how they treat their racialized workers um, or, or the aftermath of how they treat them. And it just goes to show that a lot of the burden and the responsibility is placed amongst those racialized tech workers or marginalized tech workers um, and are, some, are most of the time penalized or um, exiled from being associated with that. And so my graphic novel talks a lot about the dangers of monopolistic tech corporations and how proprietary technology locks users out of it, whether it's through hardware decisions or pricing users out of that. So some of the methods that I used throughout my graphic novel was uh, research personas. And this is a workshop I took with um, two professors from Ryerson. Um, it kind of helped me expand upon like the role playing aspect that you do in video games when you start out with your character and you get to like min and max your stats of like physical strength or like intellectualism or emotional intelligence and things like that. So it was really fun to try to do that myself through the eyes of um, how I would want my story to be played. But um, Basically, I was really interested. These were early renditions of two characters that I wanted because at the time I was so interested in stories of like two opposite characters meeting somehow and then like fighting towards a common goal. But story, writing stories is so difficult. It's actually a lot more complex than I thought. So I thought maybe the best way to go about this is to um, inference myself and use like my past as like a structure into this. But what I do find interesting is that the character on the left, um, he is a Nebraskan farmer. And the reason why that's such a specific um, persona is because with copyright infringement and proprietary tech, agricultural people and farmers are the ones who suffer the most in terms of what type of technology they can use with farming, which is kind of strange when you think of like repair or like um, hacktivism. It's mostly like technological people. Do you know what I mean? Like computer scientists or like computer programmers, but it's farmers and people in the automobile industry that actually suffer a lot because there's only one part that they need which costs like $300, $300 and their whole tractor is like unusable. So I thought that was interesting how far 
the right to repair movement could expand to different industries. Um, but then my other research persona would have been like an atypical computer scientist graduate. I think I was just interested in like showing a dynamic of my friend groups at the time. Like I wasn't friends with people while I was in school. I found them through like, like tech events, you know, <laughs> or like networking events. So I was always curious as to what their perspective might've been um, post-graduate, post-grad. Um, but I was also at the time looking at a lot of like the political economy of repair, which I'd have to say I'm not familiar with at all. Um, but I think it was really helpful that I took a course regarding that aspect because coming from a creative background, like talking a lot about economy or other areas that I'm not really um, well versed in is scary, but I think it sh helped shape the whole like wholeness of my project. But yeah, then I soon realized that writing about the future also requires uh, a tunnel to your past. It felt like I was only uh, developing one half of the story and like missing why, like the intentions of the characters. And so I looked at my own past um, and it, I kind of use it as like a counter archival practice. So looking at ways of what my past helped to inform my present and what shaped how I envisioned the future. Um, but the grandmother is specific because it represents the deep sea divers in Jeju Island, which is the most Southern island of Korea. And what I found most interesting about this like sea culture was that they would dive like multiple feet underwater without any oxygen tanks but it contrasts so much with how uh, hyper-technologically advanced Korea is as a country. So I thought this like, I guess, analog or like more human-made method contrasted with how like developed Korea's technology is, was very interesting. Um, and so that kind of showed this like generational transition between, um, between cultures, like, it's not just so much the medium that is like um, dividing generations. It's more so like, I don't know, it's, it's ability to not understand or like pass along knowledge as easily as you'd think. Um, but yeah, I think it's also referencing different generations relationship to industrialization, technological advancements and values and how they see society. But yeah, I think like referencing my own past led me to this overarching question, um, which I still struggle to handle, but my project grapples with the question of how do we stop supporting exploitative tech corporations when we feel like it's the only choice we have left? Um, these patterns of tech giants interrogating and disposing of women are mirrored very much in wise narrative which sheds light on a lot of what Citron and other tech companies uh, value most, which is their, themselves. And so Yes Tomorrow finds ways of slowing down so that we can reconcile with past and the future through repair and maintenance. Some projects I referenced um, was a speculative designer from the US, Ari Malanchano. 
She's an African-American artist who applies anti-racist and anti-capitalist design into practice through Afrotectopia, a social institution that explores art, design, technology, and Black culture. Her piece, Building a Museum 353 Years in the Future, is a co-creation speculative design piece that explores the eradication of racial oppression in future times. And so this project is structured through a timeline. Um, so she used a method, it's called the working backwards method. So um, 353 years in the future, year 2400, she works to backwards in terms of where she is in the present as a method to take steps into what she imagined each year to be. And it seems really simple, um, which is something I tried to implement in my graphic novel, but I think just like having a very like low-fi, like a low fidelity system to map out where you think the world is gonna go is very helpful. Um, and I kind of enjoy that like her goal is to create this museum of all these pieces that can like archive historical events along the time. So I tried that. Um, <laughs> it's not as like clean as hers, but I think it's helpful to just map these ideas out. So I'll try to take you through this. Um, the blue numbers at the bottom is showing age. So I thought that was important because I was trying to align the history of my father when he immigrated to Canada. So I wanted it to make sure that he was a certain age in terms of enrolling in school because that kind of helped me define how old his daughter would be and as well as how old his mother would be. And then the big line over here um, examines the year of the world. So knowing that 2100 is when Yes Tomorrow is um, hitting a record ton of garbage uh, in comparison to blue carbon being the most natural resourceful island. Um, it was just like a helpful way of shaping things like that. And it's not to say that you have to start from the end to the start. You can always start from the middle, work your way around. But I thought this was very helpful in terms of like measuring the time that you want to spend with your project. Um, this is also another method I use because a lot of my creative work talks about like immigrant, immigrant children and their relationship to, to their parents through technology. So I try to map out my own life in terms of like what devices and communication methods that I prefer. Um, it's actually like a really personal practice of mine and I think there's like a lot to be said while doing it. So this helped me shape the character Y, which I find very autobiographical. Um, but referencing the title, I think this is like another underlying theme that I have with examining family relationships is like, especially immigrant family relationships, because there's a lot of unfulfilled dreams and grappling with the past, which um, makes it really hard to confront. And I think I use this project as a way of understanding the dynamics of what my father might have felt like looking because there's there's times where the father is like instilling a lot of these skills and lessons um, hence why why i wanted to pursue something similar to her father but 
their, her father never talks about his past. He is just like shoving all these lessons to why living vicariously through her. But I think, um, I think that's what with the storytelling method really helped is to like maybe like grapple with that a little better or at least maybe understand where my father might be coming from and giving him kind of like the second life and reassurance that he came here for a very good reason. Um, but yeah, I think another striking event throughout this process before I entered grad school was uh, when we visited Korea in 2008 and they haven't gone home for maybe like 30, 40 years. Um, I could see in their eyes that they didn't recognize the country that they once called home. And I think that is um, another like result in how quickly uh, countries are evolving, especially through technology and like housing and urban environments. So that was something I wanted to portray in this graphic novel. Okay, so um, I'm going to flip the switch now to looking at more of the technical side of things. So the reason why I chose Apple, um, apart from the hacker incidents, was looking at like the, like the PR of what these tech companies have in terms of how they play a role in e-waste and repair. Um, but I'll give you a short definition of what the right to repair movement was. Um, so basically it's in terms of like any ownership that a consumer has over their devices. So any laptop, smartphone, the ability to open it up, replace the battery and not get charged for it because you bought it. Um, and it also expands to like agriculture equipment and automobiles, any electronic thing. But a lot of these, um, Activists have been fighting for the right of consumers to have that ever since like the early 2000s. And some of them have failed, some of them have succeeded, but with the rise of these tech corporations um, providing us with like ways of working, playing, revolving a lot of our livelihoods, um, it's been more difficult to sway that. And so with Apple, um, they did renounce their self-service repair program last year, November 2021, um, but it has such strict regulations that it actually makes it barely impossible. <laughs> so the main detail of it is that only approved repair suppliers are able to access these like proprietary parts, which is a whole tunnel of like um, providing your IMEI, like your serial code number, and making sure that you're not trying to like like fuck with their system. Um, but it's quite interesting that like on the surface level, they're advertising like they support these movements, but behind everything they're not, which is what I tried to emulate in terms of like the relationship between Citron and how Y figured out that they weren't doing what they're saying they're doing. Um, but yeah. Okay, um, but succumbing to public pressure, Apple revealed their self-service program in 2021, um, but repair advocates and hobbyists believe that the repair pro program is solely for good PR to appease Congress and the Federal Trade Commission. 
Dr. Corey Doctorow, a Canadian-British tech activist, journalist, and science fiction author states, any super concentrated industry is going to have a unified vision for what it wants when it's lobbying efforts. And it's going to have a lot of money to spend on it. You will more likely get sued rather than out-innovated. What he means by that is with a lot of uh, tech corporations that are able to afford these defense lawyers, they can write new laws to protect their proprietary technology as a way of innovation or anti-competition, as a way to protect them um, against the consumer. So yeah, this is a lot of like specific things that I learned in my political economy class, which I thought was really interesting because um, yeah, it's, it's a lot to read up on, but it does give you a nice like um, background as to how this type of thing works. But I just wanted to provide you with that with that knowledge. Um, yeah, so this is just another. Okay, um, so I think repair can be very interesting because it looks into remixing or reusing, and current examples of this is like. Um, Arcteryx and Toronto's Alpha Regear program, who collaborated with designer Andrew Wan. Um, he's reusing these like coats and then re-sewing them to remake something else. And there are repair cafes that collaborate with the Toronto Tool Library that also allow people to come in with their electronics or broken things um, or appliances, and they get to fix them for free. And I think what's interesting about both of these communities is that um, the repair cafe is more of a community-driven experience where you're learning together throughout this. And I think the passing of knowledge is quite interesting in these photos because it's like amongst generations, amongst different ages, different walks of life. Um, I highly encourage you to go to one, even if it's just to like witness something or not, you don't even need to bring something. You could just like witness the type of interactions that there are here, but also how, you know, clothing companies like Arcteryx is, I guess, jumping on this bandwagon, or maybe they are investing in something that they find could be profitable eventually, but also maybe they do value something about waste culture, especially within the garment industry. Um, but yeah, I'll end with some closing thoughts, just things that I want to pass along if you are venturing into a big project, but um, I think it makes sense why I pursued a master's in communications rather than something more artistic or creative is um, because of my creative practice looking at ways in which communication and technology are similar to how like immigrant parents communicate with their children. There's so much that I didn't know about information, especially like racial bias and how information is categorized on online platforms. And I think what was really useful was applying research method, methods or even believing that my past could be used as a re research method and finding the vocabulary to be able, able to communicate that to other people. Um, yeah, like being able to turn it into a methodology and then turn that moment into a story that some people could relate to or find interesting. Um, 
The second point was something that I was struggling a lot with, and I think the pandemic had a big part to play in this, but I think there's huge pressure to make sure that your experiences make sense to someone else, say your supervisor, your committee, your friends. But I think it's more so a very personal experience for you. Um, so I think letting go of that expectation that everyone's not going to understand it is totally fine. Um, but I also think it's good to be critical of the academic environment that you're brought into, you know, especially if the syllabus is like all like European or American men, um, you know, you, you are also shaving or creating that path for other people in that future sense. Um, but yeah, I think like understanding what it is you're there to do and focusing on that goal and being okay with doing that for your, achieving that for yourself is a constant reminder that really helped me complete this project. But yeah, all right. I will close off with questions, comments, or feedback. I also have my contact information if you wanted to look um, look up more of my work. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>